Hello and welcome to Real World HR, the podcast which is putting the human back into HR. I'm Louise Kennedy, HR expert, Chartered CIPD professional and founder of award-winning HR consultancy Oculus HR. In the Real World HR podcast, we focus on people and business, telling the stories that we've learned from and explaining the processes which have supported the solutions. In this episode, I'm joined by Dulcie Swanston. Dulcie has over 20 years experience in FTSE 100-250 with powerhouses like Bass and Mitchells and Butlers, PLC. And she's not just a master executive coach, but also a business mentor across sectors like retail and pharmaceuticals. This is globally. Founder of Tea Break Training Limited and the 52 Project, author of It's Not Bloody Rocket Science and a voice on the BBC, Dulcie stands out as possibly the only fellow of the CIPD with an MBA, a postgraduate in employment law and also a qualified nightclub bouncer. On the podcast, Dulcie shares her scientific research which can help us understand how to build better relationships, lead with authenticity and adapt to growth. Are you ready to step into the real world of HR? So, thank you very much for coming along today. I'm really so looking forward welcome. to our conversation. Today really is, a, for me, is kind of encompassing all kind of the emotional intelligence, the engagement, how that really impacts upon the business. And you obviously do an amazing job across all of those different things that I've just mentioned there about being able to, uh, to be able to deliver that to people. But to start with, do you want to tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and how it is that you are where you are now? Of course. So I actually didn't start in HR. I only moved into HR in my mid-30s. So I joke about, you know, I, I realised what I wanted to do when I grew up then. But I joined a business as a graduate and initially was just put into commercial life. So I spent quite a lot of my early formative life on the sharp end of the business. Then worked in operations, which is how I got the qualifications of nightclub bouncer so I've managed a number of um, pubs restaurants and nightclubs and were you actually doing the bouncing part bits of it yeah what I like what I like to do because you're quite slight for people (laughs) obviously can't see you're quite slight I can't see how this Um, works big personality short in stature is what I get quite a lot but I always like the idea that if somebody didn't turn up to do something we weren't going to shut the business and actually if you hadn't got enough people qualified to run your door you had to shut the business so I was like do you know what I'd be qualified to run the door to be fair you'll probably appreciate back in the day if you were then qualified to run the door it was always going to be open because nobody wanted their very slight area manager to be on their door for them so it worked quite well but I moved into HR when I got asked to recruit people who were slightly different to the norm back in the day in hospitality retail so pubs nightclubs they tended to be quite male dominated at the time these were the days when women didn't really go into pubs by themselves so I got asked to recruit people who were slightly different to that norm of guys that had run pubs and it was brilliant I loved it loved recruiting people loved training people but it was really new areas of expertise for me so everything that I've subsequently learned in HR has been quite hard work actually yeah Um, Mm -hmm. I would still describe myself as an operator by trade who latterly has got to know a lot about neuroscience psychology and that's what I write about now is I love taking those little snippets of science those little bits of research that people have done all over the world and saying 
this is the bit of research, this is how we know this is true, and this is how you can use it in real life. So for me, it's taking something that is, you know, well-researched, it's really good science, but then helping people to actually use it in their day-to-day business life. And that's the kind of niche I found. And obviously, there's been so much written about emotional intelligence and its connection to the business that actually that's a really easy thing to share with people because it's a a no-brainer. Yeah. So it was quite a big step from obviously working within bar industry and mm-hmm. potentially doing a little bit of HR to do recruitment of it yep. to then being interested in the, the neuroscience that takes place with it. What what happened in between? What <laughs> happened in between? Yeah, no, it's, it's, <laughs> do you know what? There's some stuff about being in the right place at the right time, but I also tell people quite often you make your own look. Yeah. Is I, I'm just one of these people that is really curious and interested in people, really curious about people's motives. And as I started to work in more and more senior HR roles, I became fascinated by how some leaders had the ability to get people to do things when they weren't there and some didn't. Some people had to kind of be hands on there all the time in order to get things done. And I started just to read about it, you know, read about the science of influence and why some people were able to get people to do things and why other people weren't. And it was that kind of combination, I suppose, of my sort of research curiosity head and my desire to kind of get something practical that helps business. And the two of them just came together. And I was hugely lucky. Mitchells and Butler's, where I spent most of my career, they were fantastic at developing their people. So I said, you know, can I go and get qualified as a coach? and the answer was yes and it was that that really turned the corner for me because it enabled me to sort of take everything I knew from psychology and neuroscience that was just my own reading and my own curiosity but to then use it to help people in real life because I kind of had a job where you're not necessarily sharing the science but a good understanding of it enables you to ask really good questions about people's motives and what they're experiencing so I owe a lot to Mitchells and Butlers to be fair because they were really supportive of supporting my curiosity as a leader. Which sounds fantastic because obviously it's that recognition between, as you say, the coaching element of it and then understanding or asking people the questions why situations happen or how they're feeling about things. And that really brings the coaching to life, doesn't it? But as you're saying, you're really kind of introducing them to the idea of what emotional intelligence is, which probably you, you'll know more than me. What, 10 years ago, was that a term? <laughs> no, no, it wasn't so, really, was it? Or maybe it's loosely yeah. starting to become a term. I mean, when I joined business, I mean, gosh, I'm, I'm, I always struggle with what the number is, but I'm 51 now and I joined business in when I was 23. So at that stage, I think emotional intelligence was seen as like a nice to have mm-hmm. and mostly it was about the HR function. Yeah. Whereas the business case for emotional intelligence now is you just can't argue with it so Gartner's did some research and you know I always send people to Gartner's research because they're expensive so Mm. usually that that is a good sign that people people will pay for their research and they have done research that suggests up to 90% of somebody's performance in role even in a technical job is down to emotional intelligence so you've now got a real business case that makes it an absolute no-brainer it's a non-negotiable I think for leaders to be emotionally intelligent and when you share that research with people if people don't have that skill naturally, 
they come to recognise they need to grow it quickly yeah. as opposed to it being something they can outsource yeah. or get somebody else in their team to you know, be the empathetic one. Mm-hmm. They start to get to know that actually it will make a difference to their bottom line. Yeah. And that's the kind of connection that I help people to make. It's the, this is worth you developing a skill that might be difficult for you as a leader because this is the research that helps you to understand that it's crucial for your bottom line performance. Yeah, and I think so many interesting points from what you said there around the impact that it makes upon a business and how it actually takes hold to it. But that understanding from a business that the leaders need to have it within it because obviously we deal with so many different types of businesses and you do get people who don't have any emotional intelligence at all. Very, very easy example this morning, went through a dismissal with somebody and literally half an hour later, someone came in and said, oh, you've dismissed that person. We've got an email that says X has been dismissed. And that was it. And they sent it out to the whole of the business. <laughs> a head in your hands moment to basically say, really? <laughs> you know, that, that that's, you, can't, you can't just portray that information to people. So, and it's kind of sometimes it's that lack of emotional intelligence and awareness build up that, that makes a big impact, isn't it? Because... I think the probably the starting point of that within a business for them to start realising the importance of emotional intelligence comes with the understanding the culture and the values. And there's a lot of businesses that don't quite have that ready and done at, at the moment. You know, we're still working with a lot of businesses who might describe themselves as having a great culture, but they don't actually know how to verbalise what that culture actually is. So being able to do work on it. So how do you think emotional intelligence fits in with the culture and values piece that a business should work together with? Well, I think when I'm helping people to come up with their values and when I'm helping them to understand what their values are, quite often I will go and spend time talking to people in the business to understand just what the human experience is. Because all a culture is really is a group of human beings coming together, isn't it? Yeah, it and, is. And then what you're doing is representing that. But when I'm doing this sort of work, I'm a really big fan of not just getting words written on a wall. Yeah. It's how does it feel to be here? Mm-hmm. And people who've known me for a long time think it's quite weird sometimes that I use words like feel because I'm really logical as a person. I'm, I'm bottom line driven. I'm much more of a thinker by nature. But all of the reading that I've done now helps me to understand that it's emotion that drives behaviour. Yeah. So therefore, a lot of our business performance is driven by emotion, not necessarily logic. And when you can help people to bring that to life, when you can help people to understand that the way that they behave makes other people feel particular ways and how people feel will absolutely impact on their business performance, you start getting a recognition it's not a nice to have. And I think then... When you're helping people to create their values, helping people to think about how they want people to feel at work as well as how they want people to behave and providing connections with that makes the whole thing hang together a bit. I'm not a massive fan of really nice shiny values that sit on a wall yeah as you've said it's got to be about how people describe their human experience of being here how safe do they feel yeah how much risk do they take what do they do when their boss isn't there and that brings me back to that fascination of I was fascinated by those leaders whose team would just do brilliant things in their absence yeah and for me that's a sign of a really strong organizational culture because you you know that psychological safety has to be there for those individuals for them to perform at that level when their boss isn't in the room when nobody's watching them yeah when actually it's about them finding that intrinsic motivation for doing great work yeah so it for me they're all linked and it's about helping people to make the connection so that they 
can think if they're not necessarily empathetic by nature because some leaders aren't it's worth them learning how to be more empathetic because it's of genuine value to the business it's not a nice to have yeah and again I think one of the points I'm taking from there was around the impact that people have upon other people yeah because so many times that we obviously we deal with disciplinaries, we deal with, you know, grievances, we deal with complaints that are put in, you know, of, of all different types of nature. But the actual impact that's made from one person to another, people still aren't aware of that. You know, so kind of if they're, they're rude towards someone or a little bit curt or they never think about what the impact of that's actually been upon the other person, the individual that's involved in that. You will see that quite a lot, mustn't you? 100%. And I'm just doing some research right now, which is fascinating in, in this space, because I don't, to your point intuitively we know that somebody's performance will be impacted if somebody's rude or curt to them but it's really hard to measure Mm -hmm. so what myself and a company called rethink have just started doing is they do the old-fashioned kind of not old-fashioned really good high value time and motion studies which most people have heard Mm -hmm. of but what we've done is linked it to behavior and they've used my model of behaviour to train their observers in kind of time and motion and productivity to watch for particular behaviours in leaders as well as to time how quickly they, you know, make a cup of coffee or serve a pint of beer or, you know, mm-hmm. do anything in a, in a factory. And what we think we've uncovered is how much people's productivity is reduced by and for how long when people aren't spoken to very well. And we reckon it's about an hour and it's about a 10% dip in performance. Now, once you get to know that sort of data, Mm -hmm. you go, oh, right, okay, so this is a thing. It's not just a case of, oh, it's it's unfortunate that's happened. Mm -hmm. If you start to imagine that every time that happens, there is a physical dip in performance that can be measured, that's when you start to get people quite excited, even if it's going to involve a lot of personal change for them to actually become somebody who is self-aware enough and manages themselves well enough to take a step back when they feel angry or to just not say the first thing that comes into their heads. And I think, you know, a one-hour dip is substantial, isn't it? You know, if someone, on average, people at work for seven and a half hours a day, you know, an hour dip out of it, and that's only on kind of one interaction that someone might have with them. And that that takes you to thinking about, you know, occasionally when conversations have been had and, you know, something's being said and the person who said it never thinks about it again. But the other person three weeks later, it's still on their mind and still yeah. comes forward. And, you know, and that's when we get the situation such as grievances and things coming through. But actually, that could be worse for some people, couldn't it? 100%. You know, so that person yeah. who's kind of played that over and over and over in their mind, yet the person who said it's never thought about it again, yeah. that could last for days, weeks, months, hours, you know. Years. Years. The impact of it it can be quite severe for some people. And and that's why I think the business impact of emotional intelligence can be really well explained when you do exactly that with people. So I train emotional intelligence across the world via a really brilliant people consultancy called People Untapped. So their clients kind of, you know, ask for this training and I've been lucky enough to do it right across all the continents. And One thing that works in any culture at all is if you ask people how it felt to be led by somebody who'd got really high levels of IQ, so intelligence quotient, but who had low levels of EQ, so Mm -hmm. emotional quotient or emotional intelligence. And people talk about things like, oh, I felt frightened or I felt confused or I felt frustrated. 
And what you're then able to do before you've shared any data with people is say, do you think that the human brain works best when it's frightened, frustrated, stressed? And people go, well, no, of course not. And then you go, well, is it a surprise to us then when people who lead with really high intelligence levels, people who are really competent at their job, but with low EQ, don't get as much out of a team's performance? And people go, well, no, now you've now you've said it like that. I can see it because we know so much about the way the human brain is wired. And we know that when we are stressed, we release cortisol and adrenaline and that those inhibit our ability to think if we have too much of them in our body and if we go into our threat response so if we fear you know if we go into fight or flight most Mm -hmm. people have heard of but there's two other responses which is freeze which is kind of not be able to say anything or appease which we kind of say yes when we mean no or we do what everybody else is doing because it keeps us safe people don't realize that the physical sensations that you get in that scenario so say your heart fills as though it's going faster or you might get a flush yeah and you can see people flushing what you're actually also noting is that the blood that would normally be powering this bit of their heads, which is called the prefrontal cortex, is actually deprived of blood, oxygen and glucose right. in order to give you that stress response. So I quite often get a flush mm-hmm. up my neck. Yeah. And you can actually see that the blood and the oxygen are filling the capillaries in my neck. Mm-hmm. What people don't realise is that blood and that oxygen has come from the cognitive centre in your brain, the bit that's responsible for decision making. So what this means for emotional intelligence is if leaders make people feel frightened or frustrated or stressed, there is a physical impact on people's ability to think in their presence. Yeah. So there has to be, you know, it then very self-evidently follows that there'll be a dip in performance. The other thing that I help people to understand is that the human brain can only do one thing at once. So there's been loads of studies done about multitasking. We can't multitask. What actually happens is we're doing two things at once Mm -hmm. and we're switching between the two things at such high speed that we think we're doing them together, but we're actually not. We're switching. And if you imagine that, and you were talking then about somebody has had something on their mind and it stays on their mind or they're thinking, oh... I know my boss has asked me to do this, but where's that come from? And did they really mean that? In effect, when they're having that internal conversation with themselves, they're multitasking. So instead of just doing the job that's in front of them, if they're thinking about your motives or they're thinking about, well, what's going to be the consequences for me if I get this wrong, you're actually getting them to multitask. So straight away, people are less efficient when they are trying to second guess their boss, when they're trying to understand what might sit behind what might look like a reasonable instruction it's like oh you, and we've all experienced that yeah, yeah, I know they've asked me have. to do this but I'm wondering what why mm-hmm. as soon as somebody is second guessing you or trying to think about your motives they are straight away less efficient at the job you've given them to do to do and do you think that part of it comes down to as part of the emotional intelligence really is around communication it's about yeah. how that I'm just thinking, you know, how you explain something to somebody and then either give them the opportunity to ask the why from it or alternatively just explain it in detail enough that they understand why it is that they're doing it without having to really say the why. That, sure, in essence, kind of makes a difference to how people feel about it. It does, and I'm a bit poacher turned gamekeeper here because I am somebody who probably used to use language that was too direct to get things done. So 
I've learnt a lot about it that's helped me. I don't sit here with like born expertise of deep mm-hmm. empathy. I've had to work really hard to yeah. make sure that the language I use doesn't accidentally trigger mm-hmm. that threat response in people. And somebody gave me a brilliant tip that I'll share because it's a really easy one for your listeners to take away. It's if you're asking somebody to do something, if you can avoid the words why and mm-hmm. but in a conversation, it will tend to not trigger that threat response. Mm-hmm. So if I said to you, Louise, why have you done that? Straight away, your brain thinks it's got to defend itself. I was going to say it goes on the defensive straight yeah, away, doesn't straight it? Yeah. Away. And I haven't even done anything. <laughs> but, but, but if you, you know, it's a reasonable question because you do want to know why somebody's yeah. done something. It makes a lot less grammatical sense to use the word what, mm-hmm. but it doesn't trigger the desire to be defensive in the same mm-hmm. way. So if I said to you, Louise, can we try to understand together what sits behind, you know, what's happened here? you're much more likely to look for actually what happened Mm -hmm. rather than defending yourself about something that you chose to do. And the other word is but. So quite often when we're talking to somebody, you might say, oh, Louise, yeah, I get where you're coming from, but. If you, again, replace the word but with and, Mm -hmm. it doesn't make grammatical sense. So as an English graduate, it kind of jars with me a bit. But it works. Yeah. So if I said to you, okay, yeah, get that, Louise, and rather than but, and then make my point, your brain immediately just doesn't feel as though I'm contradicting you. It just feels easier to hear something that's maybe a bit more difficult to hear. Mm-hmm. So I, I encourage people to do a bit of that because that's a really easy one to do. There's also things like appreciating things like your tone of voice, yeah. your choice of a time and place for a conversation, your body language. Mm-hmm what your face is doing yeah. you know some of us aren't lucky enough to have a face that kind you know my poker face is terrible you can generally see if I'm happy sad you know yeah. up down but understanding that people will take in those cues from you yeah. about what your face is doing what your tone of voice sounds like because yeah it's a real effort to manage those things as a leader yeah it's not easy no it's it, definitely not it, it takes your time and effort yeah. and you've got to give it conscious thought mm-hmm. but if you knew that asking somebody to do something slightly differently would enhance their ability to do it make them faster at it mm-hmm. and make them more able to focus on it it's worth you spending that bit of time and energy in getting that interaction to be an emotionally intelligent one that's got empathy in it, that, you know, is tuned in to the preferences of the other person. Yeah. And I think I'm just thinking about it in different contexts, really. Obviously, quite a few of our clients, you know, you know, maybe smaller businesses, kind of certainly kind of the SME ranges for majority of ours, and they don't know what to say, you know, so they go into meetings and they, and they kind of just... So they don't do it. You know, they don't know what to say, so therefore they don't do it. They don't manage the situation. So people just get really lost off and, like, they're really set adrift Mm -hmm. a little bit. You know, the the memories aren't given any clear direction. They're not given any kind of standards to work towards, kind of no expectations, because people are scared about the word that they used to be able to do. And that does take a skill, doesn't it? I think it's certainly... I think it's something that you said earlier on, you know, kind of maybe 20 years ago, people would have said that I was quite aggressive in the way that I'd delivered something or asked somebody to do it. And at the time I thought, well, why could I be aggressive and why or how could I be aggressive and do <laughs> yeah. anything? But actually then when you start realising the way that you put that across and the reactions that people have because of it, yeah. then I think it, it does become quite significant. So I've kind of been, over time, you tone that to the, to the relevant point to get the point across, however, not to be aggressive in the way that it was kind of portrayed at the time. So... Mm-hmm. 
I think that certainly the language that's being used and the tone of what's being said, because it's not it's something to do with kind of it's not actually what's said, is it's about kind of the how it's said as opposed to what's actually said. Is a, there's a lot of statistics around that element, Loads. isn't there? Yeah. yeah, I think I think it's twelve times mm-hmm. yeah, from memory because I've, yeah. I've just pulled that out somewhere. I think what we, how we say something is twelve times more important than what we actually say. And I think, for me, and this is why I run programs called Leaders Who Coach because mm-hmm. for me the biggest thing that changed me as a leader was becoming a coach. Right. Because actually, I would ask questions rather Mm -hmm. than asking somebody to do something I might say what do you think good would look like here Mm -hmm. and what would great look like yeah and how happy are you with your performance today Mm -hmm. and if you really tune in to what people tell you as a result of answering those questions you don't actually need to be half as direct as I used to be because people will tell you for themselves that they didn't think it was good enough yeah or that actually this is a good job and this is a great job. And and you say, okay, so how would you rate what you've done today against that good or that great criteria? And they'll go, it's probably neither. Mm-hmm. Actually, yeah. if you've not had to offer that up as an observation because you've given somebody the time, the space and the psychological safety mm-hmm. for them to explore whether it's good enough for themselves, you can save yourself a lot of bother because, as yeah. you say, I don't think anybody intentionally manages somebody badly and and wants them to end up in a tribunal but asking questions as opposed to making so many observations and and tuning in and dialing up my curiosity Mm -hmm. rather than doing what I used to do which is have a lot of judgment and ask you know I was never afraid to ask a question Mm -hmm. but my questions would previously have been loaded with too much judgment yeah now I'm really curious about does somebody think that's good enough? Mm-hmm. Because if you're curious about that, you can fix it in a, a myriad of ways. Yeah. Whereas actually, if it's my perception, it's not good enough, and it's your perception it was, well, all we're doing then is arguing all day long about was the standard clear, was the objective mm-hmm. clear? Yeah. So for me, it's that asking questions. Yeah. It enables you to do so much more. The other thing I would say is that when I'm training emotion intelligence, I talk about there definitely being a pecking order. That if somebody trusts you, if somebody really thinks that you've got their back, you'd be amazed at how challenging you can be. Yeah. Whereas actually, if you've not got that trust, if people don't feel psychologically safe in your presence, you could actually say the same thing and end up in quite hot water yeah. because somebody has perceived your challenge as a threat. Mm-hmm. And that's how they are responding to you. It's not whether you meant it to be threatening about whether somebody's brain processes Mm -hmm. it as a threat it's about how somebody hears it so for me I'm always working with leaders and I talk a load about dialing up your genuine empathy for people if you can put yourself in somebody's shoes and ask questions from a curious place you might then be amazed at how easy it becomes to hold up the mirror because people are prepared to look in a difficult mirror mm-hmm. with somebody who they think has got their back yeah someone who can support them to do it isn't Absolutely. it yeah. as opposed to you are really unlikely to look in a difficult mirror and mm-hmm. to take a good look at yourself if you don't feel safe in that person's presence yeah one's got to come before the other yeah and even i've just done a couple of performance management reviews there this morning with two relatively young people in the business and there were there were very basic things that they needed to do. And as soon as you said them, though, it was kind of like, oh, yeah, I could do better on that. And yes, I know that's not good enough. And sometimes it is that reality check of, as you say, you look in the mirror with somebody else who you feel safe with, who then 
for one particular girl, she kind of went through and said, yeah, I completely agree with what you said there, you know, and I know I need to make more of an effort with this and I, I need to put more into that. And, you know, so, and that was even things such as turn up for work on time, yeah. you know, kind of, you know, from a lateness point of view, we know that you're late regularly, actually, what could you do to arrive at work on time, leave earlier? Or, you know, and giving her the the ability to think for herself around what it is that would make a difference to her, but also make a difference to the business as well. So there's so many benefits out of doing that. And I think people, as you say, don't always realise. I think one of the things I always refer to is that when I worked full time, I used to be late every single day, probably 20 minutes late every day. Nobody ever, ever said anything. Reliably no, late. Yeah, yeah, all the time. I always used to work later, but you would always be late. But the mindset was nobody would say anything. However, I would discipline people all day for lateness, you know, coming into work. But it was that mindset because you were never being called to task over it. I never particularly thought it was a major issue at all. But I was the HR manager, you know, for 150 people. I should have been there on time. The reflection on it now is, you know, so you don't you don't know that until somebody kind of puts you and helps you to be able to understand things. Just fitting into that, really, I was thinking about the perceptions you touched on there. When we talk about perceptions, we all look at something in a different way, don't we? When we often do the little bite-sized training that we do. If you know you're looking at, say, a book or something, and what you're seeing from the front, what I'm seeing from the back are two different things, and you can, you have a completely different view of it. And people fight their view, don't they? You know, they feel very strongly about it. And again, with doing the likes of disciplinaries and grievances and, you know, investigations, that comes up for us a lot. You know, there might be four or five different people that witnessed the incident, but I might not get the same story at all across it. How do you think the emotional intelligence fits into perceptions, you know, people's personal perceptions of a situation? How do you think that that all fits in together? Well, it's it, it takes us back to an absolutely fundamental bit of... I suppose it's both psychology and neuroscience, which is something called cognitive dissonance. And people have all experienced this every day, even if they've not heard the term. And what this is, is this experience we all have as human beings, that once we believe something to be true, our brain will look for evidence that that thing is true. And if we believe something to not be true, our brain will look for evidence that it's not true. And if we get evidence to the contrary, it jars. We get cognitive dissonance. We get this sense that like it, it's almost like an alarm bell ringing. And if, if you know that for your brain, what is happening there is your brain's trying to collect a pattern and something comes in that doesn't fit the pattern, your brain doesn't like it because it takes much more energy to process that new bit of information mm. than it does to accept that you were wrong or you need to see something slightly differently. And when I help people to understand that as a principle and people understand the logic of that, they become much more able to go, oh, I wonder if this is one of those situations where my brain will actively resist looking for evidence that the other thing is true. Because once you know that's a thing, you can do it on purpose. Mm -hmm. So I bet in your world you see a lot of halo and horns, as I used to call it when I was in ER. So you see your really great performers Mm -hmm. and they get away with murder because people go, oh, they're really good. I'm I'm sure that was a one-off. And your really poor performers, all you can see are the bad things they're doing Mm -hmm. well actually if you got somebody to watch it on a a camera you'd probably notice that your good performers are underperforming more and your bad performers are overperforming more it's simply that when we've got a view we look Mm -hmm. for evidence that one view is true so something that I actively encourage people to do is to know that that's real Mm -hmm. to know that that is the normal way the human brain's wired because once you know that you've got a brilliant trick up your sleeve Mm -hmm. which is like right okay I believe this to be true 
So my brain is now going to resist thinking the opposite. So I'm going to go and actively look for why I'm wrong Mm -hmm. because that'll be really good for me head. But I need to bear in mind it's going to be quite hard work. And there's loads of studies that have shown that we find that really difficult and really tiring as human beings Mm -hmm. but it leads to much better business outcomes because we do something called balanced processing Mm -hmm. we're actively going to look for what we don't currently believe to be true because we only know what we don't know when we know we don't know it yeah yeah and your brain is not wired to look for that your brain is wired to look for stuff you already know and to Mm -hmm. look at current patterns so it was a really good study done by a guy called dan carhan and he was a professor of law at yale so i love getting him out because he's like a big gun right yeah and what he showed was if you've written down things that you are particularly proud about about yourself you are less likely to feel cognitive dissonance so that's super weird so if you wrote down now five things that you're really proud about Mm -hmm. that you've done over the last couple of weeks if you then go into a high pressure situation Mm -hmm. where your brain is going to be faced to confront things that you don't believe to be true the fact you've just bigged yourself up and you feel good about yourself Mm -hmm. you're less likely to have that cognitive dissonance happen right now I'm sure there's, I work with a neuroscientist all the time and he'd probably be able to explain why Why that's true. Why that would be, yeah. But I just go, have that as a gift. Uh If you're going into a really difficult meeting where you know emotions are going to run high and you are probably going to strongly disagree with somebody and not necessarily be able to see their perspective, before you go in, write down five things that you did last week that you're really proud of. Mm -hmm. You'll be smarter in the room. Yeah. It's like, I love that. I was going to say, it's like a quick win, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it's 100%. a quick win. That's something yeah. you could easily do. I um, thought you were going to ask me what I'd done really well for the last yeah. week. I was well, thinking, I've got you, no idea. You should tell us. But um, I, I opened my book with not a quote from a neuroscientist, but from a economist. It's called J.K. Galbraith. And he says that faced with the choice between changing one's mind and proving there's no need to do so, almost everybody gets busy on the proof. Right. And I opened the book with that because that Mm -hmm. first chapter was all about the lies we tell ourselves and why that's a really normal human thing to do. Mm -hmm. Because once you know that that's normal, you get better at managing yourself, Mm -hmm. but you get better at managing other people. Yeah. Because when you know that it's human to lie to yourself Mm -hmm. and to lie when you're defensive about something, Mm -hmm. if then somebody does lie to you at work, you don't always go, they're a liar, Mm -hmm. they've got to go. You go... I wonder what made them say that thing yeah. when it was patently untrue. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get really curious about why that was. Yeah. And did I do something that meant mm-hmm. that was more likely to happen? Yeah. So when you flip it, when you understand the science and mm-hmm. when you understand some of the tips that you can do, mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily make you naturally more empathetic, Yeah. but you can train yourself to use different tricks and tips and hacks that mean you will be more empathetic yeah you will be better at balance processing yeah and some of that comes down to the challenge of it doesn't it from mm. that part that you're talking there because obviously doing what we do we're kind of we can be skeptical yeah you know on certain things because people do make I'm up stories don't they <laughs> people do yeah. oh, the one that pops to mind uh, it was when i worked in automotive and a, and a guy came to tell me he didn't turn up for work that day and i said so why were you why were you not in yesterday and he said oh i'd been arrested and i said <laughs> oh right okay and um, he was one of the ones that we liked you yeah. know so i was like oh you've been arrested that's what for and he made up some story i can't 
can't even remember what the story was. And I says, well, can you just bring your paperwork in tomorrow to kind of to evidence it? So I was relentless during that week thinking, well, come on then, bring the paperwork I'm in, bit, bring yeah. the paperwork in. By the end of the week, he was like, Louise, I wasn't arrested, I just slept in. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you thought it was a better lie yeah. to say that you'd been arrested than saying you'd slept in, you know? But it was because of, from one of my things, is about consistency, you know, cons- be consistent in your approach that you're doing that actually, you know, you can show the empathy. And I think it was too much for him that I was trying to be, you know, show the empathy about his situation that he just kind of melted yeah. under the pressure of it. And and that that is difficult. You know, we've got many situations like that, but it's kind of quite relevant on it. And I think another point you were talking about there around that consistency of approach, really, that, you know, some people, as you say, are high performance, some aren't as high, but you kind of sometimes think, well, you know, we've got one at the moment where someone's had a had an accident at work hasn't reported it but he's one of you know he's one of the good good employees consistently always yeah. does what he's supposed to do but he hasn't reported it. but actually anybody else in the business would be disciplined for yeah. it and you know it is a case of from the business point of view they've worked so hard on what it is that they're doing the consistency is we need to follow through and to be able to do that so the consistency plays a part 100%. in the management of the people but you can still have the empathy that comes with yeah. that and part of that empathy is actually we'll do the process quicker not quicker like you know within the, the time strains of it but but to ensure that he's not put a kind of any undue distress yeah. during it. You know, so the empathy comes with the fact that he knows he's done wrong. We need to just move along with it, deliver the level of warning that it is and, and kind of keep the pace with it. So so there is a lot of elements that comes into the day-to-day management and how you can use it with the empathy and kind 100%. of how you how you look after the employees yeah. by having the right emotional intelligence that, that supports it as well. Well, you're right that fairness is crucial mm-hmm. because fairness is one of the things that triggers that threat response. So if anybody's interested in this, they should Google a guy called David Rock because he's got an acronym called SCARF, S-C-A-R-F. And he helps us to understand the modern triggers that kind of set off our fight or flight response. And if they Google my name, actually, Mm -hmm. I've done some videos on SCARF. And the F stands for fairness. Right. When we don't think something is fair, it triggers that rush of blood from the clever bit of our head to go into power our kind of you know you get tense you yes. might get tense in your cheeks or mm-hmm. you you know you you feel like you know you want to move around because something doesn't feel fair and you see people like expressing it in their bodies well as soon as they're doing that they're probably doing two things firstly the blood and the oxygen won't be in their head because they're they're being expressive and emotive and secondly all of that time that somebody is talking about that being unfair mm-hmm. They're not doing the job that they're employed to be doing. They're not focusing on it. And I read a brilliant stat the other day. It was something like for every occasion where something is dealt with badly like that and it feels unfair to people, it wastes eight hours of the business's time. Does it? And they've measured it. Yeah. And it's like, I love I think that stats be, like that. Yeah, I do as well. And I think that could be very true. Of course. Because I think when people do think that things unfair... You know, they think it, then they tell their friend, then they tell somebody else, then they tell somebody else, and it, and it kind of yeah. just ricochets across the across the business. So, yeah, I can I can completely see how that would draw people into it. Yeah, if if you're at work and you think something's been unfair or somebody else was dealt with differently to how you've mm. seen somebody else being dealt with, yeah, even if it wasn't you, mm-hmm. you're still chuntering on to somebody about yeah. it being unfair. And people do. People talk. And one of the things I always say to managers are people watch how you react and respond to a situation. Yeah. So there's an incident that takes place and people are watching to see how you're going to... They're not 
they're not watching because I think they're watching, but they're observing how the situation is managed. So next time round, is it dealt with consistently? Is it dealt with fairly? I think is the you know, and whether value comes back down to morals as well. You know, kind of what's morally right and wrong in the given situation. So it's about trying to ensure that businesses are morally right, consistent, and, and fair in the approach that they've got with their employees. Yeah. What would be your biggest piece of advice for listeners who want to enhance their own emotional intelligence, improve their performance and well-being at home and work? That can be from a manager's point of view or from a, a kind of somebody who's working within a business. Yeah, fine. So where I would start, I mean, we've covered a couple of them, so I'll kind of summarise those as well. But where I'd always start is with self-awareness. Okay. So if you do any reading on emotional intelligence, Daniel Goleman is probably the most famous person that's written on it. He talks about self-awareness being the kind of first kind of piece of the jigsaw but you also need that self-awareness in order to develop the other areas of emotional intelligence and I was reading a few weeks ago about self-awareness and up to 95% of people think they are self-aware but actually they've done research that suggests that only 15% of people actually are. I'm hoping I'm in the 15%. (laughs) Well wouldn't we all love to be? Um, Really hope I I am. Do you know what I would say that if I am, it's only probably in the last five years. Oh, I think maybe it's in the last two years for yeah. me. I'm not, so, I am not. think I've been self-aware all the time. I, I think we get better. <laughs> well, certainly I've got better at this with age and experience. But there are some really straightforward things you can do. Mm-hmm. My top tip for people is to make it really, really safe for people who are different to you to give you feedback. Mm-hmm. I used to recruit my own image. You know, my team all didn't look like me because most of them were guys, but, you know, mm-hmm. they, they sounded like me. Yeah. They were exuberant. You know, they were they were quite feisty. And actually what we needed was feedback from people that were different to us, yeah. people who were reflectors, mm-hmm. people who had lots of natural empathy. But the way we were behaving meant that they were the very last people that would mm-hmm. give us feedback. Yeah. So my top tip around self-awareness is to make really good friends with people professional friends Mm -hmm. that are really different to you Mm -hmm. and make it super safe for them to give you feedback and the first time they give you some feedback don't be doing the butt thing Mm -hmm. you know because I'd have gone oh yeah I see what you mean but don't just say that's brilliant thank you so much Mm -hmm. and really reflect on it because very often people will only give us feedback that they think we'll like to hear why would we give somebody feedback if they don't want to hear it and we don't feel safe in their presence so for me that one is a crucial one quite often psychometrics can help they're not the answer and I think that's the reason why a lot of people probably think they're really self-aware because they did Mm -hmm. a psychometric back in the day and they go oh I'm a x or a y or a red or yellow but I think they can be a really useful starting point to understand your superpowers mm-hmm. and the inevitable consequence of having those superpowers. So for me, one of my superpowers is social confidence. Mm-hmm. I, but I've never tried to have social confidence. I've yeah. just, I've just always just had, had it. it. Yeah. But I have to be really careful that people don't perceive that as arrogance mm-hmm. or that I don't talk too much and not listen enough. Yeah. So for me, it's using that kind of psychometric to work through what are you going to be naturally good at that you think you take it for granted you assume 
that everybody's got social confidence because you don't find it very difficult. Mm -hmm. That's really helpful for emotional intelligence. But then look at what the inevitable consequences are. Mm -hmm. So that would be the first one around self-awareness. We've talked about the avoid the why Mm -hmm. of the book because they're just super easy. We've talked about the replace judgment with curiosity. So apply that to yourself, though, as well. So when you are experiencing something... Think about, you know, don't just focus on the fact you're cross. Go, oh, it's interesting. I wonder why I feel cross. Because mm-hmm. if you say to yourself, oh, don't feel cross, don't get frustrated with them. Because mm-hmm. that's the sort of thing yeah, we tell you tell ourselves. Do, yeah. As soon as your brain hears, don't get frustrated with them, all you've said to your brain is frustrated, frustrated. So you just feel more frustrated. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you say... It's curious. I wonder what's made me frustrated. And you actually start to write it down. You'll start to like loosen up what's actually going on. And I always take away that writing down one. Gratitude journaling is another one. It is Mm -hmm. so well proven that it works, that Mm -hmm. it's not funny. So you don't need to believe that it's a thing. Mm -hmm. You could just do it and it'll work for you. So if people think about things they're grateful for, they'll release dopamine. Mm -hmm. And if they write them down, they release some serotonin on top of that. What that tends to help us to do is to feel happier, calmer. So again, if you do that before you go into a difficult situation or when you're reflecting on some difficult piece of feedback or where you know that somebody triggers emotions in you you're just less likely to feel them if you've got some more dopamine and serotonin Mm -hmm. swashing around before you go into that interaction so for me there's some really simple practical things that you can do Mm -hmm. as well as the sort of you know bigger bigger bits of breeding that you could could um, take on it yeah I think so many interesting points in there could have this conversation all day (laughs) so where can our listeners find out more about you Um, my website's toprightthinking.com so that's an easy one my book is called It's Not Bloody Rocket Science or that's the first book and they can find me as It's Not Bloody Rocket Science on Instagram Mm -hmm. and as Dulcie Shepherd Swanston on LinkedIn and something that I do every other Friday and then I talk about it next Friday is something called Tea Break Coach and that is literally three minutes of me talking talking about something from coaching but I talk about emotional intelligence I'll talk about these hacks Mm -hmm. I'll talk about what I call top right questions so really good questions that you can ask yourself or other people I'll give people top tips for well-being Mm -hmm. and I literally release those as a three-minute video so it doesn't matter if you don't like reading Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if you're really busy yeah they're on Insta and on LinkedIn so actually if you you don't like LinkedIn or Mm -hmm. you, you know you're not one for Insta yeah you can find me dead easily and and people like those I think because they are simple easy you can just have a cup of tea yeah. and you can watch them at your leisure yeah. so I would say that's the best place to oh, find fantastic. me fantastic loads of different outlets to be able to find you from so thank you very much for today obviously that kind of wraps up this episode of the real world HR but obviously a massive thank you to oh, you so coming along I think it's just so so much insight that you've kind of shared with us today and I think so many tips and actions that people can put into place, you know, very quickly is kind of just just small edits of it they can they can take after listening to the show. So for any of our listeners, head over to the show notes to connect with Dulcie, subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on any future episodes and please do leave us a review and rating. Real World HR, putting the human back into HR. <laughs>